0: A warm welcome to the fourth edition of the Equine Veterinary Education podcast. In this podcast, I'll be discussing with Dr. Madeline Campbell about some of the ethical issues around cloning horses, followed by a discussion with Professor Pat Harris about nutritional considerations for equine rhabdomyolysis syndrome. So first up, we'll hear from Dr. Madeleine Campbell about some of the ethical considerations around cloning horses. Dr Campbell is a European specialist in equine reproduction. She currently works in clinical practice and she previously was a Wellcome Trust clinical research fellow in veterinary ethics. Dr Campbell, for the benefit of some people who may not know very much about cloning, could you first tell us a little bit about how does cloning work?
1: Hmm, So the technique has changed a little over time, but as it's largely being used now in relation to horses, Essentially, what it involves is taking the nucleus of a donor cell animal, so that's the horse you're wanting to clone, and you get what we call a somatic cell from it. Typically, it would be a skin cell nowadays. And you take the nucleus from that cell, and then you take an enucleated oocyte, an egg, from a mare. And those can be acquired either from um, an abattoir or by oocyte aspiration from existing mares. And from that oocyte, you remove the nucleus. And then you add to it the nucleus of the somatic cell, normally the skin cell you've taken from the donor animal. And then by a process which varies a little between whoever's doing it, essentially that combination of the enucleated oocyte and the nucleus from the skin cell activated using some combination of chemicals and sometimes an electric current and that makes the nuclear material start developing like an embryo so you then have what you call a reconstructed embryo and that embryo after it's reached a certain stage of development a blastocyst is transferred into a recipient mare. So so that last stage is just like if you're doing a regular embryo transfer normally.
0: Okay. So yes, in the article it mentions an array of assisted reproductive techniques. So it mentions IVF and embryo transfer. So where does cloning fit in along this scale?
1: So I think if you, if you kind of thought of it as from like the simplest most commonly used assisted reproductive technique in horses through to the most complicated and least frequently used the most commonly used clearly would be artificial insemination, probably followed by embryo transfer. And then we have a range of things like oocyte aspiration, gamete into fallopian tube transfer, IVF, which hasn't generally been terribly successful in horses, and then at the kind of far end of that scale, probably the cloning.
0: Where's cloning currently occurring? To my knowledge,
1: cloning is a, a clinical or a commercial process is is occurring in Europe, in North America, um, and in South America. And there's certainly Some interest in offering it as a kind of commercial, strict clinical technique in Australasia, Uh, and then there's also various research groups throughout the world.
0: And when we're talking about cloning, we're talking about cloning parts of animals or
1: the whole. No, we're talking about cloning a whole animal. So what what would more accurately be described as reproductive cloning? So cloning a whole animal.
0: Okay and from the horses that have already been cloned worldwide then is there any information on the health
1: and welfare status of existing cloned horses mm, the answer to that is is very little I and mean, there's uh, one group which is led by professor hinrichs in america and they have published quite a lot of data but even their data doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happens once you're past the first year or so of life, that, that has generally concentrated on the foals and, and how they've done. And other than that, to date, there hasn't been much published data. What we do know from what has been published, and some this is certainly something which we need to do some ongoing research on, is that there seems to be, as a kind of broad picture, a fairly high rate of early embryonic death in cloned embryos within horses, not as much problems probably during the pregnancy as you experience in other species and i'm i'm talking about kind of problems with the fetal development and the placenta and and so forth which are known to occur for example in farm animals and seem to from the little data we have to occur less in horses and again not as much problem with the foal being born compared say to cloned calves being born where in farm animals there's this recognized thing called large offspring syndrome where the the fetus and the placenta tend to basically overdevelop and become extremely large and then it becomes very very difficult to give birth and there's a kind of whole range of problems associated with that and and that from the little data we have seems not to occur really in horses and then again from the little data we have that does seem that the foals when they are born from what we have in the literature at the moment require quite a degree of neonatal intensive care for the first few days okay. and from the little that is in the literature at the moment then seem to do quite well after that.
0: So with the farm animal data, how can we compare what's happened in farm animals to horses so far?
1: Mm. Well, I think what has become obvious from farm animals, and the same will be true with horses, of course, is that some of the problems which have been seen have related to technique and, for example, to the way in which embryos were being cultured and improvements in technique can help to abolish those problems. So being fair, one should say we recognise there have historically been these problems and there are these problems still ongoing, but it is likely that with improvements in technique we could get rid of those problems and, you know, and therefore get rid of the consequent welfare issues in which case you might swing around to thinking it was an ethical thing to do because it wasn't associated with considerable welfare issues in farm animals.
0: Why would we be interested in cloning horses in the first place?
1: Well, there's a variety of reasons. So they range from, for example, wanting to clone a successful athlete. So, you know, there've been some fairly famous examples in the media of horses that have done very well, for example, in show jumping or eventing, and they have then been cloned. Or it might be if you had a very successful athlete who's a gelding to effectively put that horse back into the breeding pool. So you've got a gelding which has done very well competitively, but it didn't have semen frozen before it was gelded originally. That would appear to kind of never be able to be used for breeding, despite the fact it's been so successful competitively. But one possible way around that is to clone that horse. And of course, then what you've created is a cloned foal, which is an entire male. So you can then use that cloned foal to breed from. And you've got very, very nearly the exact same genetic constitution as you have in the horse that was successful competitively. So that's one reason for doing it some people just want to clone a favorite horse rather like people want to clone their pet dogs and then there's also uh, the possibility of using it for conservation of of rare breeds so for example say you had a situation which you were facing an outbreak of exotic disease in a population which you thought was going to be extremely susceptible to it then one option would be to take a load of skin biopsies and bank them and should you find yourselves in a situation where that rare breed is likely to be effectively wiped out, you could then clone using those banked skin cells to preserve that rare breed. So there's a conservation possibility. And then finally, they can be used as research models. You can use cloning in horses as a research model for cloning techniques in other species. Although, of course, having said that, horses are very expensive research models compared to other species.
0: Yeah. OK, so there's a kind of conservation argument, a competitive angle, maybe research. With a competitive area, I mean, different disciplines mm. have got different guidelines on how pro-cloning they might be. Can you discuss mm. that a little bit?
1: I mean, the ones I'm most aware of are, are the FEI guidelines. That's, uh, as I'm sure you know, the body which governs all Olympic, equestrian sport, and then various other disciplines as well, like reining, for example, carriage driving, sometimes the carriage driving. And they initially were against cloning and then subsequently changed their minds now interesting the reason they were initially against it was essentially a kind of fair play sporting argument that they thought allowing cloning would give people an unfair competitive advantage and they subsequently changed their minds on that so they do now allow clones to compete and the offspring of clones to compete and there is some other disciplines, for example, polo, in, in which it's actually increasingly common to have clones competing, especially in the big polo community in South America. And then I don't know off of my, the top of my head of a, a sporting body which doesn't allow cloning, but there would, I'm sure, be some breed registries which probably still don't, because there are some breed registers which still don't allow AI, for example, whether it's thoroughbred, so they obviously wouldn't allow cloning either. Yeah.
0: So, what are some of the arguments against cloning horses why should we we be concerned
1: Mm, well there's a range of arguments and i mean some i always find it quite interesting to kind of compare the arguments against cloning horses or in fact any animal with the arguments against cloning people and Mm. and some of those if you're thinking about people are social you might say you know all to do with the relationship between people and how a clone would interact with other people and the rest of their family and and that clearly doesn't apply to any animal i think so we can kind of discount those types of argument. Then there's what you might call a kind of moral argument against cloning animals. Because I think the arguments being made against cloning horses are not really any different from the arguments being made against cloning other animals. But one set of those arguments would be a, a moral argument against doing it. And that's kind of essentially it's just a step too far. You were talking about that kind of range of assistive reproductive techniques. And, and the moral argument is that cloning animals is just, you know, beyond the kind of level at which man ought to interfere. And that has interestingly been quite relevant to the argument in Europe about whether or not cloning of animals should be allowed by the legislation because they've done a couple of Eurobarometer surveys and clearly showed that a majority of people questioned kind of thought that it was morally repugnant to clone animals, whether or not they were concerned about other possible welfare benefits and, and so forth. So there's, there's definitely some people who simply think it's morally repugnant and shouldn't be allowed, full stop. And then there's the set of arguments which I suppose concern me most, which are, are the arguments to do with welfare and you know, the, the suffering that may or may not be associated with it. And that, again, it depends on the stage of, the, of development and on the, the species.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a kind of whole host of things that could be involved with the moral argument. What kind of morals is this based on? Is this just kind of a, a human gut feeling, or is this kind of linked to religion
1: somehow? What what are your takes on this? <laughs> My impression is that it is just a bit of a gut feeling, actually.
0: Yeah. So oh. it's this kind of repulsion to the idea.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I think people just find it kind of repugnant that, that we should be, as it is seen by them, interfering with nature to that extent.
0: Okay. You did mention thinking about cloning in other species. Do you think cloning horses is one step away from cloning
1: people? No. I mean, that, you know, there is a slippery slope argument, obviously, that cloning animals, you know, is inevitably going to lead to cloning of people. But I don't really buy that argument. And okay. I think you know, cloning animals and people, although the techniques obviously might be similar, you know, reproductive matters in people are generally extremely well regulated, particularly in this country, for a start, and I think even those people who might find animals cloning kind of morally and ethically acceptable, the vast majority of them wouldn't find that true of human cloning, so I don't worry about that too much myself.
0: So what do you think it could mean for the future if cloning were allowed in the UK?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because, first of all, it's not entirely clear to me that it's not allowed at the moment. So when we're talking about horse cloning now, obviously, when we're talking about whether it's allowed or not, there's kind of two aspects, I suppose, to consider. So the first is, would a vet be allowed to do it in the sense of, would the RCVS consider that a recognised veterinary procedure? Mm -hmm. You know, not something for which you required a home office licence, for example, not an experimental procedure. And obviously anyone considering doing it would have to speak to the RCVS about it, but given that it is being carried out in other countries as a clinical procedure, I think it's quite possible it would be considered to be a clinical procedure here. Then there's the more complex argument about whether or not it's kind of legally allowed, and that is quite complicated and interesting. So if we go back to 2013, the European Commission in 2013 tabled some proposals which would essentially ban The use of cloning technique in the European Union for farm animals and the import of animal clones. And at that stage the European Commission's proposals included horses which were being used for agricultural production but had a derogation in it for animals which were kept exclusively for other purposes such as, for example, research production of medicinal products preservation of rare breeds, so that's the conservation issue we were talking about earlier, and sporting and cultural events. So at that stage, it seemed like cloning horses at least was still to be allowed in Europe even if cloning of other species was to become banned. And then in, in October 2015, the European Parliament actually amended those commission proposals and removed that derogation for sporting and cultural events. So what that seems to mean my interpretation of it at least at the moment is that should those european parliament amendments be agreed upon in regulation negotiations with the european council the cloning of all horses other than endangered breeds would be not allowed in the eu so then i suppose the question of whether or not it's going to be allowed in the uk would come down to whether or not we were still in the eu at that stage
0: yes very topical (laughs) (laughs) so what's um, what's the current consensus amongst the equine industry here, then? Is there a, is there a consensus? I know,
1: I think there probably isn't a consensus. Yeah. Um, you know, there's it's, it's mentioned in the equine media, for example, the Horse and Hound magazine, you know, every so often. And I think there was a diversion of opinion. You know, some people think it's a, a great and wonderful thing, and, and some people have doubts about it and for my own part you know the doubts at the moment revolve very much around these welfare issues and i think the crucial thing is that we know that that welfare issues to do with fetal problems placental problems abnormalities in the neonates and abnormalities later in life exist in farm animals and what we really don't have a good handle on at the moment is whether those same problems exist in horses Mm -hmm. and the little that's available in the literature as i said probably tends to suggest that they don't It, it seems likely that we have a high rate of early embryonic death and one may or may not consider that an ethical problem depending on how you view the kind of moral status of embryos and animal embryos in particular. But I think from a welfare point of view, what we can say about that is that there is no evidence at the moment that equine embryos in those early stages have the capacity to suffer or to feel pain. So from a welfare point of view, we probably don't need to worry about high rates of early embryonic death. And what we need to know in in much more detail is really the ongoing health of, of the clones as they grow up and what is going on in the neonatal period and probably to confirm this initial impression for the little that's published that there don't seem to be a huge number of problems with dystocias and, and so forth.
0: Yes, yeah, so certainly it's still an evolving field,
1: isn't it? Is uh, yeah, it, it's a field which, um, you know, in order for the ethical debate to, to progress, it, it absolutely needs more evidence as, mm-hmm. as far as what's going on clinically and, and what the welfare implications of that are. And, and the encouraging thing, actually, having spoken yeah. at a conference about this at the beginning of 2015, is... I think actually that the majority of people working in the field are quite keen to collaborate, to acquire that data. You know, they're, they're not being defensive about it, which is good.
0: Yeah, that's good. Thanks so much, Dr. Campbell. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Next, I'm speaking to Professor Pat Harris about nutritional considerations for equine rhabdomyolysis syndrome. Professor Harris is Director of Science at Waltham and is part of the Equine Studies Group. So, first of all, Professor Harris, can you describe for us what is equine rhabdomyolysis syndrome?
2: Exertional rhabdomyolysis describes a syndrome of typically recurrent exercise-associated muscle damage that occurs in horses but has a variety of etiologies. However, because it is multifactorial and because some of the causes have not yet been identified and in my own experience the condition does not always require exertion for the clinical signs to be seen, I prefer to refer to it as the equine rhabdomyolysis syndrome or ERS. It is what is often referred to as tying up So what exactly it is. It's something that can affect the skeletal muscles of horses of apparently any age, breed or gender. And the potential clinical signs that can be seen include muscle stiffness, exercise intolerance and the partial or complete inability to move. Death can occur and other signs include muscle fasciculations, abnormal gait, lameness, poor performance, back pain and other signs. So one or more of these signs can be seen in any individual episode. So can we predict which horses might suffer from this? Certainly not by just looking at them. And one important factor is even for those affected animals, for many of them, in between the episodes, they are absolutely clinically normal.
0: Mm.
2: Some of them, ongoing muscle involvement can be detected even when they're not showing clinical signs through monitoring their CK and AST blood activity levels. For other animals, especially when there are certain breeds that have a high risk of a particular type of ERS, then it may be that a muscle biopsy or a blood test or a hair test looking at the follicles might indicate those animals that have an increased risk of developing certain forms of ERS. The only thing we have to be aware of is that even when they are at high risk, does not mean that they're automatically going to suffer further episodes or any episodes.
0: Okay. What is it that causes
2: ERS? Very good question. I certainly believe that affected animals typically will have an underlying susceptibility to the condition that is then triggered by one or more factors, which usually includes exercise of certain type, Mm -hmm. and that results in the clinical signs. But the actual type and nature of the exercise that's needed to trigger an episode is in turn influenced by many other factors, including what is the underlying cause, as well as the age, fitness, the individual animal, its temperament, and of course the diet. So what is actually causing it? We believe, and certainly my co-author and I believe, that affected animals appear to be divided into two groups. But I would like to stress that episodes can occur intermittently or recurrently in both of these groups. So the first group are those where we've been able to confirm that that primary underlying susceptibility is intrinsic to the muscle. And this is sometimes referred to as chronic RER or chronic ERS. But I personally do not find that helpful because for me... These animals can have episodes in either group that's intermittent or recurrent. So, this group, this intrinsic group, includes those that are suffering from particular conditions such as PSSM, which is polysaccharide storage myopathy. And in PSSM, they actually have a defect in either carbohydrate storage and or utilization. But even if we take PSSM, it's been divided in turn into those animals that have both the abnormal amylase-resistant muscle glycogen and also have a missense gain of function, genetic mutation in the equine glycogen synthase 1 gene, and that's known as PSSM type 1. And that type has been found to be the main form of PSSM in both draft and quarter horse breeds. But it doesn't account for all PSSM cases, And it's been suggested that those animals that don't have the mutation, which are known as PSSM type 2, probably have a different cellular or molecular cause. Most of the published work on the nutritional management of those animals suffering from PSSM has actually concentrated on those with type 1 PSSM, i.e. the abnormal amylase-resistant glycogen and the missense gene. So we don't know whether the same measures are optimal for those with a type two. If we look at those of the second group, so that was the first group where it's intrinsic, the second are those in which the intrinsic muscle defect is not thought to be present, or perhaps more correctly, where to date we haven't found an intrinsic defect. And these really include those animals that develop the condition through situations like overexertion or perhaps due to dietary mismanagement. It is, however, possible that those dietary and environment factors actually modify the underlying genetic cause. So you could perhaps cause the second, which I refer to in the article as extrinsic, they probably could be called idiopathic.
0: So you mentioned PSSM, but what about recurrent equine rhabdomyolysis or RER?
2: Yeah, good question. It's another specific cause of the intrinsic type of ERS. Here, the belief is that the disorder is in muscle contractility or in the excitation-contraction coupling. It was actually originally described in thoroughbreds and thought to be associated with an abnormality in the intracellular calcium regulation. But this has actually been questioned. One of the issues is that it's not actually practically possible to confirm that there is a problem with muscle contractility. And so most of the cases we manage in practice without actually establishing a definitive diagnosis of RER. So again, perhaps we should call them suspected RER.
0: Okay. With this challenging in diagnosis, are there any techniques that we can use in practice to
2: diagnose ERS? Yes, I think we can use a combination of clinical signs. I certainly think in some animals listening to their history, we can use and monitor CK and AST activities. They can be useful often to monitor them before and after an exercise test. And then in certain individual animals, and where appropriate, I think looking at muscle biopsy to look for this amylase resistant muscle glycogen and for other histological changes, There's also, as mentioned before, there is a test that you can do now for the genetic mutation found in PSSM type 1. And I certainly think there's a lot more information on this on, for example, the RVC's Comparative Neuromuscular Disease Laboratory website.
0: Okay, great. What can be done to manage horses to reduce their risk of ERS?
2: I think, firstly, it's really important, as I said before, to realise that the underlying predisposition, as well as those triggering factors, can differ between individuals, which means that the exact changes that you need to do that will be successful in one animal may not work in others. But there's been a lot of evidence now, both using controlled studies and field trials and my own personal experience, to suggest that, Appropriate dietary manipulation and changes in the way we manage and keep these animals can either help to reduce the likelihood or the severity and or the frequency of further episodes in many susceptible and affected animals, but I would like to say with caution, not necessarily all. So the things that we're thinking about, if we look at diet first, the actual diet, again, will depend on the individual horse. It'll depend on what they're being used for because that obviously affects their energy needs. It'll also depend their history with respect to ERS and what's the likely underlying cause. And then how much and what type of complementary feed, i.e. what we need to feed in addition to forage, and how that should be comprised will depend on the type of ERS and its severity, as well as how much energy the actual individual horse needs. What I would say is all the general principles that I'm going to mention actually are based on current recommended nutritional principles for actually for the more optimal feeding of horses. So they're really based in general on feeding animals that are prone to ERS on a forage-based diet with reduced or very restricted, in the case of TSSM, non-starch carbohydrates. First of all, we need to base the diet on good, hygienic quality forage. I personally recommend that animals that are prone to ERS, wherever possible, they should fed hay rather than haylage or silage. And obviously, the more energy requirements the individual animal needs, the less mature hay that will need to be fed. I tend to base it on grass rather than legume hay. But if required, for example, in those animals where we want to help potentially to reduce the risk of gastric ulceration. From personal experience, I suggest adding small amounts of alfalfa, either chaff or long hay, can be added to the ration gradually as the workload increases. But I do stress that I don't tend to recommend personally large amounts of alfalfa for ERF cases. And then, especially for those with PFSM, It is essential to feed forages as well as feeds with a reduced NSC and that's a non-structural carbohydrate and what I'm meaning here is starch plus water soluble carbohydrate content and this should be less than 10 or possibly 12 percent on a dry matter basis and the aim here is to minimize the post-feeding responses of both the glucose and the insulin just when we're talking about this reduced NSE, soaking hay may or may not result in a substantial loss of WSD. It certainly can be a helpful additional measure. Another thing to think about is with animals that are prone for ERS, and again, especially the PSSM cases, in order to reduce the NSE intake, we need to treat them a little bit like they're a laminitis-prone animal, and to avoid turning out onto a fast-growing, very lush pasture with a high fructan stroke, high water-soluble content. But it's really important that prolonged periods out into a paddock is very, very beneficial. And particularly with PSSM cases, just changing the diet does not seem to be as beneficial as both changing the diet and allowing them to have a lot of free exercise. So I tend to recommend to people with ERS cases to treat them a little bit like a laminitis prone animal. Just on that carrying on though, that if you are basing the diet on forage, you probably we need to consider an appropriate forage balancer, i.e. one that provides vitamins, minerals and high quality amino acids to complement the forage only ration.
0: Would you be able to give some pointers of where else vets could go to for more detail about formulating diets for horses with this condition?
2: Certainly I think the article that we've written in Eve gives quite a lot of information as far as the type of diets you need to do because as well as looking at the forage you've got to think about if they need additional energy you've got to think about what type of energy sources we should be feeding. And if we're trying to reduce the NSC content, or the starch and sugar intake, we need to first think about digestible fiber sources, such as soya hulls and then molasses sugar beet pulp. And then we need to think about feeding vegetable oil if we need additional energy. And then you have to think how much oil is suitable. And for various types of ERS, we have the guidance to the amount of NSC that should be fed per day. And the amount of oil that might be beneficial because there are, as we can discuss later, potential additional benefits of feeding oil apart from it purely as an energy source. As far as where you can get information, as I say, the Eve article, there's also information in the Equine Applied and Clinical Nutrition book, which Radio Manfred Kuhnan and myself edited. And this gives quite a lot of information It will also give information if you're trying to work out what type of oils, how much oil etc. should be fed.
0: Okay, fantastic. So when you're instituting these management changes, how long can you expect to wait before seeing the
2: effect? It's very individual, but typically clinical improvement in the signs of ERS can occur within a few weeks of the recommended diet change. Once we get the PSSM or, for example, suspected RER-affected horses are on a regular exercise schedule plus the change in the diet. The only thing I would mention that for some individuals, especially those with PSSM, the clinical signs can take several months to resolve. And certainly for some of them with very high levels of the abnormal glycogen, this may increase the time that it takes for the clinical signs to resolve. Okay,
0: the article discusses the role of stress in ERS risk. What would you say constitutes stress that could trigger ERS?
2: There's this underlying susceptibility and then there's a number of triggering factors and these triggering factors can vary for the individual animal. So I often get owners to keep a diary and trying to monitor what might be the factors that in an individual animal do seem to trigger an episode. But as far as in general, minimizing stress and providing regular routines which are tailored to the individual. So the kind of things I'm talking about is for those animals that get agitated when they are fed last, then you might need to feed them first. Some individual animals are more upset when they exercise on their own rather than with company, and others are the other way around. providing compatible equine company, avoiding negative interactions with horses during riding and training. For some thoroughbreds, the young thoroughbreds with RER, a number of things like they want to go faster than the training program, that may not be possible to change, but it's just being aware that these type of factors can influence From my personal experience, for some animals, the use of horse walkers when we're trying to return to fitness may not be advisable, especially in those that get a little bit distressed by their use, but even others that don't seem to be, sometimes it doesn't seem to be as beneficial as we might have hoped. With some of the dietary components, then sometimes
0: then we're we're feeding to maybe um, calm horses down or try and manipulate the, the temperament in some way do you think there's a link that we can define between diet temperament and ERS
2: I think there are certain individuals especially those with RER that seem to be fairly excitable and it's, there's been a little bit of work to suggest that the response to diet either glucose and insulin and cortisol responses Two high NSC rations are actually enhanced when the suspected RER horses are fit, and this might in turn be associated with increased excitability. So part of the reason in some of these animals that we suggest restricting the amount of starch and sugar they're fed and replacing those energy with these highly digestible fibre sources. And also using a high oil or fat diet may actually mitigate those increases and actually in turn may reduce the excitability. And in turn, that may reduce one of the triggering factors in those individual animals. But again, the exact mechanisms are really not proven at the moment.
0: Yeah, so it's it's possibly an interesting area for more work in the future, perhaps.
2: I think... A lot of work are looking at how diet can affect behaviour and how that in turn can affect disease in various diseases and conditions such as ERS may be very, very beneficial.
0: Okay, well thank you ever so much for giving us the overview of the article. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for listening. Look out for more Equine Veterinary Education podcasts on the EVE webpage.